Chapter Sixteen, Part Four of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Sixteen, Richmond, Virginia, Part Four. February fifth, when Lawrence handed me my husband's money, six hundred dollars it was. I said, "Now I am pretty sure you do not mean to go to the Yankees, for with that pile of money in your hands, you must have known there was your chance." He grinned, but said nothing. At the president's reception, Hood had a perfect ovation. General Preston navigated him through the crowd, handling him as tenderly, on his crutches, as if he were the Princess of Wales's newborn baby that I read of today. It is bad for the head of an army to be so helpless. But old Blucher went to Waterloo in a carriage, wearing a bonnet on his head to shade his inflamed eyes, a heroic figure, truly an old, red-eyed, bonneted woman, apparently, back in a landau. And yet, Blucher to the rescue! Afterward, at the Prestons, for we left the Presidents at an early hour, Major von Borke was trying to teach them his way of pronouncing his own name, and reciting numerous travesties of it in this country, when Charles threw open the door, saying, A gentleman has called for Major Bandbox, the Prussian major acknowledged this to be the worst he had heard yet. Off to the Ives's theatricals. I walked with General Breckinridge. Mrs. Clay's, Mrs. Malaprop, was beyond our wildest hopes. And she was in such bitter earnest when she pinched Connie Carey's, Lydia Languish's, shoulder and called her an intricate little huzzy, that Lydia showed she felt it, and next day the shoulder was black and blue. It was not that the actress had a grudge against Connie, but that she was intense. Even the back of Mrs. Clay's head was eloquent as she walked away. But, said General Breckinridge, watch Hood. He has not seen the play before, and Bob Akers amazes him. When he caught my eye, General Hood nodded to me and said, I believe that fellow Akers is a coward. That's better than the play, whispered Breckinridge. But it is all good, from Sir Anthony down to Fag. Between the acts, Mrs. Clay sent us word to applaud. She wanted encouragement. The audience was too cold. General Breckinridge responded like a man. After that, she was fired by thunders of applause following his lead. Those mighty Kentuckians, turned claqueurs, were a host in themselves. Constance Carey not only acted well, but looked perfectly beautiful. During the farce, Mrs. Clay came in with all her feathers, diamonds, and falals, and took her seat by me. Said General Breckinridge, What a splendid head of hair you have! And all my own, said she. Afterward, she said, they could not get false hair enough, so they put a pair of black satin boots on top of her head, and piled hair over them. We adjourned from Mrs. Ives's to Mrs. Old's, where we had the usual excellent Richmond supper. We did not get home until three. It was a clear moonlight night, almost as light as day. As we walked along, I said to General Breckinridge, You have spent a jolly evening. I do not know, he answered. I have asked myself more than once tonight, Are you the same man who stood gazing down on the faces of the dead on that awful battlefield? The soldiers lying there stare at you with their eyes wide open. Is this the same world, here and there? Last night the great Kentucky contingent came in a body. Hood brought Buck in his carriage. 
She said she did not like General Hood, and spoke with a wild excitement in those soft blue eyes of hers. Or are they gray or brown? She then gave her reasons in the lowest voice, but loud and distinct enough for him to hear. Why? He spoke so harshly to Sy, his body-servant, as we got out of the carriage. I saw how he hurt Sy's feelings, and I tried to soothe Sy's mortification. "'You see, Sy nearly caused me to fall by his awkwardness, and I stormed at him,' said the general, vastly amused. "'I hate a man who speaks roughly to those who dare not resent it,' said she. The general did own himself charmed with her sentiments, but seemed to think his wrongdoing all a good joke. He and Sy understand each other. February 9th. This party for Johnny was the very nicest I have ever had, and I mean it to be my last. I sent word to the Careys to bring their own men. They came alone, saying they did not care for men. That means a raid on ours, growled Isabella. Mr. Lamar was devoted to Constance Carey. He is a free lance, so that created no heart-burning. Afterward, when the whole thing was over, and a success, the lights put out, etc., here trooped in the four girls, who stayed all night with me. In dressing gowns they stirred up a hot fire, relit the gas, and went in for their supper. Rechauffe was the word, oysters, hot coffee, etc. They kept it up till daylight. Of course we slept very late. As they came in to breakfast I remarked, The church bells have been going on like mad. I take it as a rebuke to our breaking the Sabbath. You know Sunday began at twelve o'clock last night. It sounds to me like fire bells, somebody said. Soon the infant dashed in, done up in soldier's clothes. The Yankees are upon us, said he. Don't you hear the alarm bells? They have been ringing day and night. Alex Haskell came. He and Johnny went off to report to Custis Lee and to be enrolled among his locals, who are always detailed for the defense of the city. But this time the attack on Richmond has proved a false alarm. A new trouble at the President's house. Their trusty man, Robert, broken out with smallpox. We went to the Webb Ball, and such a pleasant time we had. After a while, the PMG, Pet Major General, took his seat in the comfortable chair next to mine, and declared his determination to hold that position. Mr. Hunter and Mr. Benjamin essayed to dislodge him. Mrs. Stannard said, Take him in the flirtation room. There he will soon be captured and led away. But I did not know where that room was situated. Besides, my bold Texan made a most unexpected sally. I will not go, and I will prevent her from going with any of you. Supper was near at hand, and Mr. Mallory said, Ask him if the Varia Lloyd is not at his house. I know it is. I started as if I were shot and I took Mr. Clay's arm and went in to supper, leaving the PMG to the girls. Venison and everything nice. February 12th. John Chestnut had a basket of champagne carried to my house, oysters, partridges, and other good things, for a supper after the reception. He is going back to the army tomorrow. James Chestnut arrived on Wednesday. He has been giving Buck his opinion of one of her performances last night. She was here, and the general's carriage drove up, bringing some of our girls. They told her he could not come up, and he begged she would go down there for a moment. She flew down and stood ten minutes in that snow, sigh holding the carriage door open. But, Colonel Chestnut, there was no harm. I was not there ten minutes. 
I could not get in the carriage because I did not mean to stay one minute. He did not hold my hands, that is, not half the time. Oh, you saw. Well, he did kiss my hands. Where is the harm of that? All men worship Buck. How can they help it? She is so lovely. Lawrence has gone back ignominiously to South Carolina. At breakfast already, in some inscrutable way, he had become intoxicated. He was told to move a chair, and he raised it high over his head, smashing Mrs. Grundy's chandelier. My husband said, Mary, do tell Lawrence to go home. I am too angry to speak to him. So Lawrence went without another word. He will soon be back, and when he comes he will say, Shoo, I knew Mars Jeems could not do without me. And indeed he cannot. Buck, reading my journal, opened her beautiful eyes in amazement and said, So little do people know themselves. See what you say of me. I replied, The girls heard him say to you, Oh, you are so childish and so sweet. Now, Buck, you know you are not childish. You have an abundance of strong common sense. Don't let men adore you so, if you can help it. You are so unhappy about men who care for you when they are killed. Isabella says that war leads to love-making. She says these soldiers do more courting here in a day than they would do at home without a war in ten years. In the pauses of conversation we hear, She is the noblest woman God ever made. Goodness, exclaims Isabella, which one? The amount of courting we hear in these small rooms. Men have to go to the front, and they say their say desperately. I am beginning to know all about it. The girls tell me. And I overhear. I cannot help it. But this style is unique, is it not? Since I saw you last year, standing by the turnpike gate, you know, my battle cry has been, God, my country, and you. So many are lame. Major Venable says, It is not the devil on two sticks now. The farce is Cupid on crutches. General Breckinridge's voice broke in. They are my cousins, so I determined to kiss them good-bye. Good-bye, nowadays, is the very devil. It means forever, in all probability, you know, all the odds against us. So I advanced to the charge soberly, discreetly, and in the fear of the Lord. The girls stood in a row, four of the very prettiest I ever saw. Sam, with his eyes glued to the floor, cried, You were afraid. You backed out. But I did nothing of the kind. I kissed every one of them honestly, heartily. February 13th. My husband is writing out some resolutions for the Congress. He is very busy, too, trying to get some poor fellows reprieved. He says they are good soldiers, but got into a scrape. Buck came in. She had on her last winter's English hat, with the pheasant's wing. Just then Hood entered most unexpectedly. Said the blunt soldier to the girl, You look mighty pretty in that hat. You wore it at the turnpike gate, where I surrendered at first sight. She nodded and smiled and flew down the steps after Mr. Chestnut, looking back to say that she meant to walk with him as far as the executive office. The general walked to the window and watched until the last flutter of her garment was gone. He said, The President was finding fault with some of his officers in command, and I said, Mr. President, why don't you come and lead us yourself? I would follow you to the death. 
Actually, if you stay here in Richmond much longer, you will grow to be a courtier. And you came a rough Texan. Mrs. Davis and General McQueen came. He tells me Musco Garnett is dead. Then the best and the cleverest Virginian I know is gone. He was the most scholarly man they had, and his character was higher than his requirements. Today a terrible onslaught was made upon the President for nepotism. Burton Harrison's and John Taylor Wood's letters denying the charge that the President's cotton was unburned, or that he left it to be bought by the Yankees, had enraged the opposition. How much these people in the President's family have to bear! I have never felt so indignant. February 16th. Saw in Mrs. Howell's room the little negro Mrs. Davis rescued yesterday from his brutal negro guardian. The child is an orphan. He was dressed up in little Joe's clothes and happy as a lord. He was very anxious to show me his wounds and bruises, but I fled. There are some things in life too sickening, and cruelty is one of them. Somebody said, People who knew General Hood before the war said there was nothing in him. As for losing his property by the war, some say he never had any, and that West Point is a pauper's school, after all. He has only military glory, and that he has gained since the war began. Now, said Burton Harrison, only military glory. I like that. The glory and the fame he has gained during the war, that is Hood. What was Napoleon before Toulon? Hood has the impassive dignity of an Indian chief. He has always a little court around him of devoted friends. Wigfall himself has said he could not get within Hood's lines. February 17th. Found everything in Main Street 20% dearer. They say it is due to the new currency bill. I asked my husband, Is General Johnston ordered to reinforce Polk? They say he did not understand the order. After five days' delay, he replied, They say Sherman is marching to Mobile. When they once get inside of our armies, what is to molest them unless it be women with broomsticks? Footnote. General Polk, commanding about 24,000 men scattered throughout Mississippi and Alabama, found it impossible to check the advance of Sherman at the head of some 40,000, and moved from Meridian south to protect Mobile. February 16, 1864, Sherman took possession of Meridian. In footnote. General Johnston writes that the governor of Georgia refuses him provisions in the use of his roads. The governor of Georgia writes, The roads are open to him and in capital condition. I have furnished him abundantly with provisions from time to time, as he desired them. I suppose both of these letters are placed away side by side in our archives. February 20th. Mrs. Preston was offended by the story of Buck's performance at the Ives's. General Breckinridge told her it was the most beautifully unconscious act he ever saw. The general was leaning against the wall, Buck standing guard by him on her two feet. The crowd surged that way, and she held out her arm to protect him from the rush. After they had all passed, she handed him his crutches, and they, too, moved slowly away. Mrs. Davis said, any woman in Richmond would have done the same joyfully, but few could do it so gracefully. Buck is made so conspicuous by her beauty, whatever she does cannot fail to attract attention. Johnny stayed at home only one day, then went to his plantation, got several thousand Confederate dollars, 
and in the afternoon drove out with Mrs. K. At the B store he spent a thousand of his money, bought us gloves and linen. Well, one can do without gloves, but linen is next to life itself. Yesterday the President walked home from church with me. He said he was so glad to see my husband at church, had never seen him there before, remarked on how well he looked, etc. I replied that he looked so well, because you have never before seen him in the part of the right man in the right place. My husband has no fancy for being planted in pews, but he is utterly Christian in his creed. February 23rd. At the President's, where General Lee breakfasted, a man named Phelan told General Lee all he ought to do, planned a campaign for him. General Lee smiled blandly the while, though he did permit himself a mild sneer at the wise civilians in Congress who refrained from trying the battlefield in person, but from afar dictated the movements of armies. My husband said that, to his amazement, General Lee came into his room at the executive office to pay his respects and have a talk. "'Dear me! Goodness gracious!' said I. That was a compliment from the head of the army, the very first man in the world, we Confederates think. February 24th. Friends came to make taffy and stayed the live-long day. They played cards. One man, a soldier, had only two teeth left in front, and they lapped across each other. On account of the condition of his mouth, he had maintained a dignified sobriety of aspect, though he told some funny stories. Finally, a story was too much for him, and he grinned from ear to ear. Maggie gazed, and then called out, as the negro fiddlers call out dancing figures, Forward to and cross over. Fancy our faces. The hero of the two teeth, relapsing into a decorous arrangement of mouth, said, Cavalry are the eyes of an army. They bring the news. The artillery are the boys to make a noise. But the infantry do the fighting and a general or so gets all the glory. February 26th. We went to see Mrs. Breckinridge, who is here with her husband. Then we paid our respects to Mrs. Lee. Her room was like an industrial school, everybody so busy. Her daughters were all there plying their needles with several other ladies. Mrs. Lee showed us a beautiful sword, recently sent to the general by some Marylanders, now in Paris. On the blade was engraved, Et toi et du tédra. When we came out, someone said, Did you see how the Lees spend their time? What a rebuke to the taffy parties. Another maimed hero is engaged to be married. Sally Hampton has accepted John Haskell. There is a story that he reported for duty after his arm was shot off. Suppose in the fury of the battle he did not feel the pain. General Breckinridge once asked, What's the name of the fellow who has gone to Europe for Hood's leg? Dr. Darby. Suppose it is shipwrecked. No matter, half a dozen are ordered. Mrs. Preston raised her hands. No wonder the general says they talk of him as if he were a centipede. His leg is in everybody's mouth. March 3rd. Hetty the handsome and Constance the witty came the former too prudish to read Lost and Saved by Mrs. Norton after she had heard the plot. Connie was making a bonnet for me. Just as she was leaving the house, her friendly labors over, my husband entered and quickly ordered his horse. It is so near dinner, I began. But I am going with the President. I am on duty. He goes to inspect the fortifications. 
The enemy, once more, are within a few miles of Richmond. Then we prepared a luncheon for him. Constance Carey remained with me. After she left, I sat down to Romola, and I was absorbed in it. How hardened we grow to war and war's alarms! The enemy's cannon, or our own, are thundering in my ears, and I was dreadfully afraid some infatuated and frightened friend would come in to cheer, to comfort, and interrupt me. Am I the same poor soul who fell on her knees and prayed, and wept, and fainted, as the first gun boomed from Fort Sumter? Once more we have repulsed the enemy. But it is humiliating, indeed, that he can come and threaten us at our very gates whenever he so pleases. If a forlorn negro had not led them astray, and they hanged him for it, on Tuesday night, unmolested, they would have walked into Richmond. Surely there is horrid neglect or mismanagement somewhere. March 4th. The enemy has been reinforced and is on us again. Met Wade Hampton, who told me my husband was to join him with some volunteer troops, so I hurried home. Such a cavalcade rode up to luncheon. Captain Smith Lee and Preston Hampton, the handsomest, the oldest, and the youngest of the party. This was at the Prestons. Smith Lee walked home with me, alarm bells ringing, horsemen galloping, wagons rattling. Dr. H. stopped us to say Beast Butler was on us with 16,000 men. How scared the doctor looked. And after all, it was only a notice to the militia to turn out and drill. March 5th. Tom Ferguson walked home with me. He told me of Colonel Dahlgren's death and the horrid memoranda found in his pocket. He came with secret orders to destroy this devoted city, hang the president and his cabinet, and burn the town. Fitzhugh Lee was proud that the Ninth Virginia captured him. Footnote. Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren was a son of the noted Admiral John H. Dahlgren, who, in July 1863, had been placed in command of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron and conducted the naval operations against Charleston between July 10 and September 7, 1863. Colonel Dahlgren distinguished himself at Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and Gettysburg. The raid in which he lost his life on March 4, 1864, was planned by himself and General Kilpatrick. In footnote found Mrs. Sims covering her lettuces and radishes as calmly as if Yankee raiders were a myth. While Beast Butler holds Fortress Monroe, he will make things lively for us. On the alert must we be now. End of chapter 16, part 4